Hello world, welcome to JavaScript Air. Hello everyone, um, today we're going to be talking about the JavaScript framework Angular and uh, we have some subject matter experts with us today. Um, I'll get to introducing them in a second but before I uh, get too far into things I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsors who make this show possible. First, Egghead.io is a, the show's premier sponsor and they have a huge library of bite-sized web development training videos Check them out for content on JavaScript, Angular, React, Node, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, Friend and Masters is a recorded expert-led uh, workshop with courses on advanced JavaScript, asynchronous, and functional JS, as well as lots of other great courses on front-end topics like Angular. Check them out um, at frontendmasters.com. And then TrackJS reports bugs in your code before your customers notice them. And with, a te with their telemetry timeline, you'll have the context to actually fix them. Check them out and start tracking JavaScript errors today at trackjs.com. And Wallaby.js is an intelligent, super-fast test runner for JavaScript that continuously runs your tests. Uh, it reports code coverage and other results directly in your code editor immediately as you change your code. Check them out at wallabyjs.com. And finally, CodeCove. CodeCove is co uh, code coverage done right. Reduce technical debt by visualizing test performance and faster code review. CodeCove is highly integrated with GitHub and provides browser extensions. Learn more at codecove.io. Um, it also is free for open source projects, which is bomb, super awesome. Okay, so um, while we're going through the show today, if you have any questions, if you're watching live, then you can use the hashtag JSAirQuestion on Twitter, and I have that open, and I'm looking at it, um, and we will answer those questions during the show or at the end of the show. Um, we'll answer as many as we're able to, so um, ask away. And then, as always, um, this is a weekly show, and we have a show next week. It's uh, Reactive Programming in JavaScript with Ben Lesh, Matthew Podwiski, Saki? Yep, something like that. <laughs> and um, Andre Stoltz. So it should be an awesome show. I'm looking forward to it. And as always, follow us on Twitter and Google Plus and Facebook to keep up with the latest. So um, let's introduce who is on the show today. Um, first, our panelist today is Pam Selly. Hi. And I am your host, Kent C. Dodds. And we have three amazing guests today. Brad Green. Hello. Igor Minar. Hi there. And Mishko Hevery. Hello. And we're super excited to have each one of them here on the show with us today. Um, before we get into our subject about Angular, I think it'd be a great thing to have each one of them introduce themselves. So Brad, why don't you go first? Give us a little intro to yourself. Sure. Um, yeah, Brad Green. I'm an engineer director at Google, and I work on the Angular project. And these guys tell me what to do. <laughs> awesome, Igor. <laughs> so hi, I'm Igor Minar. I'm a software engineer at Google, and I'm one of the leads on Angular. Hello, I'm Mishko, and uh, I'm a tech lead on the the core of Angular Two. Great. Thank you for your work. Um, so let's go ahead and I think a good starting point for us is the, just the general question, what is Angular? Well, so Angular is, I mean, this it sounds like a simple question, but it's kind of changed from Angular 1 to Angular 2. In Angular 1, we were trying to really simplify developers' lives in building a web app by giving them a framework to give some structure, reduce boilerplate, make testing easier, all those nice things. And in Angular 2, we've kind of increased the scope of what we're trying to do. And we, we now are grandiosely calling it a platform because we, we did a lot of work with the TypeScript folks on the language. Mishko and Igor have been working on the core JavaScript facilities with the TC39, doing things like extending it with decorators and zones and 
some other things coming down the pipe. We're building some rich tools to help make sure the developer experience is good, and then attacking this problem for developers, not just for the web, but for uh, mobile web, native mobile, and for desktop also. Cool. So uh, when when you mean uh, or when you're talking about platform, um, can you can you actually expound a little bit more on that on um, how um, how Angular is becoming more of a platform? Like, are, do you mean that it's going to be more than just web technologies, um, or like what what are the actual use cases that you're hoping to see Angular uh, be right. kind of a part of? Yeah, so so Angular one, we, you know, our architecturally we were tightly coupled to rendering in the DOM. There was no good way to plug other renderers, other template engines in. But we like we know that if you are successful, you probably have a bunch of different platforms you need to develop for, and to be able to share code and expertise across those development targets, you know, th this is not an easy thing. But we think like web tech has really gotten to the place where you can, you know reliably deliver to all of these platforms, maybe with some different renderers. Mishko, maybe talk about the split that we did in Angular 2 to allow pluggable renderers and template <coughs> engines to be a good idea? Right, so in, um, in Angular 2, we wanted to make sure that you don't need to get hold of any of the DOM API uh, when you're developing the application. So the injection system was beefed up, um, the, the markup was beefed up, and all of these things were really done so that uh, you don't have to get hold of the DOM. And as a result, your application can run really in any environment, whether it's a server or a web worker. And the renderer, uh, we have a default renderer which renders to DOM, but we have other renderers, for example, one that uh, serializes across wires, so you can actually have the application running in a web worker and render to the UI. Uh, and it turns out once you have it running serializer across the, uh, the web worker, uh, there's actually no difference whether the application actually might be running on a node and you can serialize into the, the browser as well. Uh, we have other renders, for example, for uh, React and NativeScript, uh, which actually allow rendering to native uh, widgets and native UI. <coughs> so cool. So just to be clear, um, this is uh, basically you you can run Angular anywhere that runs JavaScript. Is that kind of the I like overarching idea? Yeah, and and, and you know, it not doesn't just have to be Node on the server. We just need JavaScript. There's nothing special about Node. And so we're working on integrating with other server platforms. So we'd like to be able to run it from Java. And we've been working with the Drupal folks on PHP integration. It, it also means, though, that in systems like Electron or Windows Universal, where I do have a, a JavaScript engine, we can actually run not in the UI thread, but off on another process and get direct access to the platform API. So this is really powerful. Like for my services in Angular, now I don't actually have to make an HTTP connection to get at data or talk to USB or you know Windows Auth or what, whatever I, I wanted to do. I can go directly. Very cool. Uh, so can you, since we're kind of on the subject of uh, platform, um, can you talk a little bit about um, Dart and how Angular 2 and, and Dart work together? So yeah, Angular 2, we, like, we actually built on Angular 1 two things. We built one version for JavaScript and one version for uh, Dart. And Mishko had the bright idea that maybe we could combine the two and just have a single platform that we deliver across all of these, uh, all of these targets. And so, so now we, you, we author in TypeScript, and we generate Dart, TypeScript, and then APIs for ES6, and today's JavaScript as well. 
Cool. Um, since we're like continuing on this topic of uh, of languages, um, can you talk about uh, why TypeScript is important to Angular development? We just did an interview on Microsoft Channel 9 with, with Anders where we talked about kind of the history, but Mishko, you you were most involved. Talk about how we started with languages. Right. So uh, as I said earlier, like one of the things we wanted to make sure is that if we want to run offline or in environments other than DOM, we need lots of declarative information about what you're trying to do, what your intent is. And you know, th this declarative nature of things is really uh, what annotations or decorators are for. And they're well known in, in places like Java, but there's nothing like that in JavaScript. And so we, <coughs> the whole thing started because we wanted to have annotations. Metadata. Metadata, yeah. et cetera. And um, at first, we started with this idea of AppScript. But luckily, we, we met TypeScript. So we, we were going to write our own language. That's right. Silly us. Silly us, but we uh, met up with TypeScript, and they were saying, well, we'll just add the thing in there for you, and you can have all the benefits that you want. Uh, and so this is the reason why we started this down this path. But it turns out having type system is actually very important because it allows large teams to work together. You know, If you have a team of uh, uh, 20, 30 people working on a particular project, uh, it's just not possible for everybody to keep everything in their head. And so it, it helps if you give things names, which are types. It helps if there is a formal verification system that says the thing that you named is actually the thing that you have. Um, and so it's really an enabler for large-scale teams. And once that happens, it also is an enabler for refactoring. What Anders likes to say is that without types, you end up having write-only uh, code base. That is, you can write code and you can have large code bases, but everybody's afraid of changing anything once things are up and running. And with, with the type system, uh, becomes a read-write code base. It's not only that you're writing code, uh, but you also are rearranging it uh, as well. Yeah, I mean that's for developers, but like we actually benefited ourselves from writing Angular in TypeScript. Right, it did benefit, uh, as you pointed out. We found out. bugs. We found bugs, <laughs> and we also, you know, a lot of team members. Uh, I think what, what Brad likes to say is they came up and said, you know, now I actually understand what I'm working on. <laughs> and it's because, like you can actually traverse the code base and find the source. Um, it's nicer. We often talk about the benefits of the type system for big projects and big teams, but I find that even on small projects it's beneficial, especially if you have like many small projects. Uh, just keeping all of them in your head and understanding how they work, it's not feasible. And, uh, and also, when you're starting and just need to explore you know, what kind of APIs are available, if you have a type system, you can get much better tooling support, and the tools can help you like explore the API surface, understand how to wire things together, and tell you, tell you when you make a mistake. So it's beneficial for both you know, beginners working on small projects, but also experienced developers working on large projects. Right. I think like for the individual experience, my IDE gets to help me a lot more to find out what is this API I need to use, whether it's an Angular API or a DOM API or whatever it is. I'll then for big teams, communication. I just want to add to it uh, as a reminder. <coughs> you are not required to use TypeScript. Um, we highly recommend it because we think there's lots of benefits. Uh, but you can just stick to the good old uh, JavaScript of today. And it actually turns out that the good old JavaScript of today is a valid TypeScript program. That's right, uh, yes. Uh, if, people might, if you're scared of TypeScript, you, you could continue writing JavaScript the way you well, do today. It turns out you've been using a subset of TypeScript all along. That's the way to talk about it. <laughs> it, it, just, it just works. Things just, just work together. Yeah. And you can slowly introduce the types you know, as you see fit. Very cool. So with, with that in mind, um, is there any plan to upgrade the Angular 1 code base to be TypeScript? We, we had some thoughts about this, but it's a big undertaking. Um, 
And we, we really want to get Angular 2 out of the door and help people migrate from Angular 1 to Angular 2. So it doesn't, like, we don't see that it would have the impact uh, that would be worth justifying the, the cost. Of yeah, I mean, we have a, a, a export of the types on Angular 1, so people can get a lot of the benefits from Angular 1 using TypeScript already. <laughs> and us rewriting it in TypeScript probably doesn't give you much, if anything, more than that. That makes sense. Yeah, with, with TypeScript, there is a way to have external definitions of the, the type surface, type system surface, and um, that already exists uh, on definitely typed, which is a repository of these um, definitions, type definitions. Okay. Um, I thought it was interesting when you you mentioned how people seem to understand the project better in TypeScript, um, and that sounds like something I've I've heard from the community about um, learning Angular one or learning Angular two is that they find Angular two a lot more understandable. Um, both in not not even necessarily because of the TypeScript part. It's actually I know the components part that a lot of people really like, and the um, what the hell is it or what the heck is a directive question. <laughs> um, a little bit more understandable. So what do you what do you think about uh, how you've made like how are you making Angular 2 a bit more accessible and understandable for you know your everyday developer? So we spent a lot of time uh, simplifying things. Uh, you know, there's well, we got to see all of the things we had laid out that grew organically over the time That's of right. Angular 1. Right. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of things in Angular 2 is just Happen to be the way they are organically. In Angular 1, not Angular. In Angular yeah. 1, yes. Um, so in Angular 2, <clears throat> we wanted to really kind of holistically look at it and simplify it as much as we could. And I think we did a pretty good job. So, I mean, one, one example is in the uh, the way we do, we've simplified the direct, directive landscape by collapsing the concepts into That's right. here's how we handle events, here's how we handle binding. And there's only one way to do things. That's right. Um, and, and as it turned out, like a whole bunch of the directives that we shipped in Angular 1 just disappear uh, because we have a nice syntax that encapsulates all of it. And, and it allows us to work with future JavaScript. It's more future-proof because we don't have to write a directive to encapsulate functionality. We can just find the, sort of the low-level um, idioms. And you know, let me add to it. The other thing that might not be obvious is that Angular 2 is a lot more toolable. And so uh, companies like WebStorm to provide their IDEs uh, can give you a lot more help in navigating through, uh, you know, clicking through the HTML, getting back to the components, seeing the related uh, uh, formatting for it, etc. And so you, you're going to see a lot more rich kind of experience with Angular 2 and the IDs. <coughs> so, so uh, I, uh, I hear an echo. Um, anyway, I'll go through it. Unless. How do I have an echo? I, I just muted the, the Angular guys. Sometimes this happens in the middle of the show. Apologies <laughs> to our listeners. So um, now it, I, I feel really bad, but if uh, maybe, Brad, if you could mute and unmute yourself, uh, yourselves, that'd be great. Thanks. All right. Um, so you, when you mention uh, so the, the key phrase that there's a one way to do things, um, that sounds like uh, let's establish conventions. Um, do you think that, because uh, that's one of the things that I don't, I, I don't know what your experience is with Kent, but like I haven't seen, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's a lot of conventions around Angular 2 yet or if there will develop. 
Um, I'm thinking about like in in like Ruby world or even in Ember world, um, where like there is a you know right way to do something. Um, is that something that uh, we would you'd want to see in Angular too? Um, like is that a goal? Yeah, it, it is a goal. Uh, as Brad mentioned, you know the the scope of Angular two is is uh, bigger than the scope of Angular one. And Angular one, we build the, the core framework and have people basically figure out how to use it. Um, uh, and the the best uh, practices and conventions evolved over time as we got more familiar with different use cases and as uh, uh, the the whole ecosystem evolved. With Angular 2, we have a lot of experience with building large applications, you know, at Google and also outside of Google. And we're taking all of this experience and, and building a style guide uh, for Angular 2, which is going to be part of the documentation. All of the examples and tutorials are going to reflect this. And it's going to be built into the, the CLI, which is going to help you bootstrap your project and uh, generate all of the scaffolds for you. Um, we're working with John Papa and Minko Getchev on this. Um, and um, there's going to be you know, single style guide uh, that's going to be recommended to the whole community. And one thing to realize with the, with the style guide is that it's really a recommendation. Um, that there's nothing in the framework that prevents you from using the framework in a different way. Uh, this is just a recommendation for you to you know, get started, uh, learn from the best practices that we know of today. And uh, um, if you find that in your company there might be some reasons for diverging, then you, know, you should feel free to do that. But we're, you know, we're coming with a bunch of experience about building apps already. Like internally at Google, we've built a bunch of Angular 2 apps. We've seen a lot of the ways components get put together. And the thing that is also very cool is, in addition to the CLI, which will set up your directory structure and initial code, the way that works with uh, the conventions we lay out in the docs, um, Minko is also building a linter that will take you know as many of these things and give you real-time feedback as you write the code. Am I following conventions or not? It's optional, but seems pretty cool. Yeah. And one thing that is part of the style guide is um, explanation as to why there there is a certain recommendation. Um, because that gives you insight into, you know, why is this best practice, and is it applicable to your situation? So, so you can make your own decision. So uh, all those, a bunch of those things you just mentioned, uh, is that CLI out, or? Like, the CLI is currently in alpha. Uh, it's still being developed, and uh, the style guide um, effort is is undergoing, um, and we are slowly taking all the all the stuff from the style guide we have today and moving it into the CLI. Yeah, I mean the other big thing we get from the CLI is collapsing all of the setup you have to do with polyfills and installing tools and configuring. Uh, and you know, all the way through to scaffolding tests and running them and launching my developer mode and then deploying. That's in our. If you if you go through our quick start guide, it's not as quick as we would like because of the overhead in building a modern JavaScript project where I need to install a transpiler and SAS and my testing tools. Um, and so this will all drop away. And our goal for final is we're going to replace all of those instructions with just the one line. Uh, you know, npm install Angular CLI and Angular CLI new project. It, it should be a lot better for folks getting going. Yeah, a lot, a lot of feedback we get is that Angular 2 seems complex, but when people dive in, they realize that it's not Angular 2 that is complex. Angular 2, as you mentioned, you know, the whole uh, component system is very simplified compared to Angular 1. Uh, the, the friction really comes from the setup of the tooling and, and dealing with uh, all of the new stuff that is 
browsers that is currently provided through polyfills and that needs to be set up. Um, we see this as a temporary state uh, until the browsers implement many of these features and over time we will rely less and less on, on polyfills. However, what I also see is that as TC39 comes up with new standards like async functions, you know, developers get really excited about them and want to use them. So while we say that you know, many of these things are temporary, I see that over time the reliance on tools will exist, but it's just going to get smoother. Um, this sounds like a great answer to the JavaScript fatigue thing that people are um, all crazy about right now. Um, I wanted to ask about the linter that you mentioned. Is this going to be a brand new linter, or are you going to build on top of something that's pluggable like ESLint? I, I don't know the details. I think it's orthogonal to ESLint. This is more about style. Yeah. Um, I don't know all the implementation details. My understanding is that ng-lint, which it's an already existing project, you can you can Google it. Uh, it's a Minko's uh, Geshev's uh, project. Uh, my understanding is that it's built on top of uh, TypeScript language services, um, and he has a rule-based system where he verifies if the AST uh, diverges from unexpected rules. So it is actually uses some uh, plug-in to the TypeScript language system that Chuck on our team is working on. Uh, what do you want about what he's doing? Like, Mishka, you created the issue. Uh, sorry, what was my name? The metadata. The metadata. Uh, the language services that Chuck's working on. Right. Um, so, so Chuck's working on the metadata collection services, which allow us to, uh, there's two, two benefits we get out of it. First of all, uh, we can uh, add it to the tooling. So like IDs like Visual Studio can provide uh, the completion and just lots more insight. And it's not just um, Visual Studio, but really any IDE that uses um, TypeScript, TypeScript service services, including like even if you have it set up for VI, Sublime, or yeah. anything like that. Uh, the other benefit we get is that we can, uh, by collecting all those data, uh, we can then run the compiler offline and generate the source code um, of the application and then ship it to, to the client. And the benefit there is that one, if you're shipping actually less code, we don't have to ship the framework. And actually, the stack messages, the error messages become a lot more uh, uh, useful because instead of having this, this meta stack trace that talks about you know, generically how the framework does things, now you have a stack trace that directly points to a specific line of generated code, which refers to a specific um, line in the template or CSS with a comment over there. And so it's a lot more insightful as to what's going on. And now you can actually put breakpoints on a specific if check rather than just you know generate breakpoints across all changes action. And the cool <laughs> thing about, about this is that basically we take all of the HTML code and all of the metadata, translate it into code, and once we have that, we can do minification on this code. So while templates and, and the metadata are kind of hard to minify because the, the framework needs to be able to read them, once we process them, uh, we generate instructions in form of code, and that code can be then minified and made much smaller. Very cool. Yeah, that actually kind of touches on the thing that I wanted to talk about next, which is performance. Um, and performance has a lot of different vectors, uh, minification being one of those. Um, what are some of the things that Angular 2 is doing to make performance awesome? Sure. So um, again, we're talking about the code generation. Uh, by doing the code gen, we create code which in technical terms, it's called monomorphic code. Um, turns out that uh, uh, the the VMs love monomorphic code. It can uh, it, they can optimize it very well. Um, and so by doing that, we can get really amazing performance, not just in terms of uh, runtime, 
but also in terms of startup, because you don't have to put cold start, the yeah. cold start, mm -hmm. sorry, in terms of the cold start, and in terms of how much uh, we have to, memory pressures as well, and how much we have to actually ship to the, uh, the browser. So all of those are kind of great benefit in terms of performance. Uh, the other performance we're looking at is uh, we spent a lot of time just making sure we can render things fast. And we got it down to essentially one line, uh, piece of line that basically says, if previous value is not equal to current value, then you know, reference to a DOM element dot set text the new value, right? It, it's hard to imagine how this line of code could be uh, shorter. Um, because the new value is literally the expression you've placed yeah, on there. So one pointer compare, and only if it's tripped do we get to and, update. And we know exactly where to write, because we generated all this code, so it's not like we have to go through a hash no or, yes. or anything like that. We know exactly where to write the, the, the information. Um, so what, what uh, Tobias likes to call this is, is this obviously fast, right? Because you look at the code, and you go like, well, it's just checking and then writing, so I can, can't imagine how to make this shorter or, or rather faster. Uh, and, and there's very little, very little to do because there's just that's right. not, not much to, <laughs> not much to check. Um, th there, there are a bunch of other things we're doing for performance. Um, so what one? So we're, we've we've done dropping the compiler, generating the code, changing the change detection algorithm. <laughs> but also exploring some other routes, because it's not just about that rendering performance. It's also startup speed <clears> and how much do we interrupt the UI thread. And so for startup speed, we've been working with uh, a bunch of external folks, um, Patrick Stapleton and um, Jeff Welpley, on Universal, where we can render on the server for a very fast initial startup speed, and then working with web workers so we can actually offload Angular into a separate process and not interrupt the UI thread and make things always responsive for the user. I want to add actually one more thing to it, which is that uh, by default we run the, the good old change detection, right? the thing that people have come to love, which is very friendly towards other libraries, et cetera. Um, but we are set up in a way that we can actually run other uh, strategies. So for example, if you choose to make your code immutable, uh, you can flip a couple of flags, and you can make the, the, the framework be take advantage of this thing. So there's even less work for us to do that. There's even less work. And the important <laughs> part here is that um, this can be done on per-component basis, right, uh, rather than on a global basis. So you can have this hybrid application where you say, well, for the top level, it's actually really prefer the change detection because it's simple to reason about. But for the leaves, for example, I'm going to choose an efficient immutable algorithm or something like that. And it also supports the reactive slash flux style programming model as well. So you do have a lot of choices. So to, I guess to summarize, like we can, uh, the stuff we do, we do faster. Um, we give you a whole bunch of other options in terms of how to detect changes. And we allow you to offload stuff onto different threads. Sounds like uh, you've opened it up to a lot of uh additional experimentation and, and exploration as well. Uh, so that's that's awesome to hear. So on a on a different tack, it sounds like you all have lots of thoughts on performance. <laughs> um, but uh, what about uh, about uh, moving across platforms? So you know, shipping projects on mobile, and you talked about you know the ability to ship to all these different engines. Um, but what does that mean for like people thinking like, okay, Angular two, how do I put it on mobile? Yeah. Well, there's there's two kind of routes. So so one is what we'll call mobile web. 
And you may have seen some of the studies recently where folks like Flipkart have gotten tremendous amount of engagement by just focusing on their mobile web story in this sort of progressive web app style application where my app, when I first surf to it, for the user is looks like a website, but it come, becomes more like an installed app as I use it. So on first download, we use service workers to cache the data and the code. So the next time I come to it, it's already there very fast. And this is where people actually make money. It's very hard for me to get my app installed. Most apps on the, the App Store and the Play Store never get installed, ever, not once. Um, but people still are able to make money by dragging people to their websites on mobile. And so, so this is where we really want to help people uh, build into this problem space. So we take advantage of Angular's much more minimal memory pressure. You use much less memory, faster change detection, offloading some of the work to web workers if you've got an a intensive application so that you can have a completely native performant experience over there. And you know, we've got a team actually focused just on this. And we'll have starter code. It'll be part of the CLI. It will get started quickly, go down that path. Um, if you are very successful and you can get people to install your native application, there's a bunch of different options. So one is the Ionic team we've worked with for a long, long time. And we've been working with them throughout Angular 2 to make sure that Ionic 2 can launch in the similar time frame. And we've been here, like, I haven't used it, but I've actually heard a lot of great things about how, how much nicer Ionic 2 is. They take advantage of all the, the performance enhancements that we have to be able to deliver through a, a web view. Um, if you want to go actual native, there's actually two different options you can go down right now. So one is Telerik's native script, where I kind of write once, and I get full access to all of the local platform APIs through this reflection capability that they have in JavaScript. They have some very nice tooling around it. I can build for Android, iOS, and I think Windows Mobile. And then the other one is React Native, and we've been working with some folks at Amadeus to build this support in so that you can use React's native render. It's similar to native scripts. You don't get direct access to all of the platform things. You have to write a wrapper, kind of like Cordova works. Uh, but it's got some very nice APIs, and it, it seems like a nice development environment also. And performance is really good. And performance is very good on that, yep. So those are, those are some of the options. And then I talked a little bit about desktop with Electron and Windows Universal being the target shells that you can use over there. Cool. Um, so I think um, Pam actually wanted to uh, talk about Rx. Is that right, Pam? Well, it, so uh, I found it really interesting to, I'm a big fan of the RxJS project, uh, and that you all use it in Angular 2, is that correct? Yep. Um, and it seems timely since, you know, listeners, you can tune in next week and, you know, hear about RxJS. So I, I kind of wanted to ask, you know, what what you all, like, why did you use RxJS um, in your tooling tool chain, um, and how do you think it's beneficial? Yeah, sure. Um, I can take it from this one. So in Angular 1, when we were dealing with uh, the problem of synchronous programming, we looked at, you know, is there something better than callbacks that we can use uh, and expose us APIs? And uh, we came across promises. And promises really solved the problem of one-time events uh, that are asynchronous that you need to respond to in some way uh, and handle errors. Um, one of the big selling point of promises was composability. So you could set up chains of events that happen in some succession, and all of them are synchronous or potentially synchronous, 
And basically, you can set up complex applications in this way. In Angular 2, we had more and more needs of repeated events, not one-time events, but things that happen over and over and over again. And promises are not great for modeling this kind of uh, situations. So we looked around, and, and somehow I, I managed to come across uh, Jafar Hussain from uh, Netflix and Ben Lesh. And uh, I saw the presentation, and it totally opened my eyes, because I saw like all the problems that we were dealing with and that we couldn't solve well with promises were really well modeled through observables. And uh, Ben Lesh uh, was, at the time, starting the RxJS project. So we talked to him, and, and uh, we basically came to the conclusion that Rx5, uh, Rxjs5, would be a perfect fit for what we are trying to build uh, with Angular as a framework and expose observables as our user-facing APIs. Uh, combine that with the effort to standardize observables in DC39 and make it part of the language. It felt make us felt it, it made us felt really good about you know relying on these kind of uh, APIs as public-facing APIs. And it actually like you're talking about from a developer perspective, but from an end-user perspective. You know, in JavaScript, we don't have good idioms for handling uh, like off the beaten path cases. So on mobile, it seems rock solid on the web. It's not. I just get used to. Oh, I'll just reload it. If it doesn't work out because I don't. I don't have a way to retry or to cancel events and decrease my load. And this this actually gives it to me. Yeah. And this is this is the composability effect or um, impact of of observables. Just like it promises. It was much easier to reason and recover from errors, or at least handle errors. With observables, you can do the same thing in much more complex situations that we see more and more frequently in complex applications, where network connection is slow or fails, or uh, you have various uh, errors that pop up during the runtime, and you need to deal with them in some way that you know doesn't crash the application, and you don't need to tell the user to just restart. Cool. I'm. Really disappointed, but um, not not because of your answer. Your answer was great. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a weird lead-in. Yeah, that was that was a weird lead-in to what I was gonna. I, what I'm disappointed about is uh, that we're coming down on our time, and we do have a couple of questions on Twitter that I think we should probably get to uh, because we care about the people. Uh, so if anybody is watching live, you can ask on Twitter with the hashtag JSR question. If there's anything that we didn't cover that you'd really like to make sure that we cover. So um, I'm going to go ahead and lead into that, unless there's anything in particular that you all wanted to make sure we cover. All right. Sweet. Twitters. Yeah, let's go. So um, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing your name right, but I think it's um, Evgeny. Yep. Uh, Evgeny Oz. He asks, uh, will, uh, will Firefox and Safari be supported before RC1 or after? Before. Uh, we already run tests, and <laughs> I think there are few failing tests on Safari right now. Uh, we need to fix those, but definitely before RC. Very cool. And actually, just to ask more broad, more broadly, what is the um, the browser target for Angular two? So it's it's all the the evergreen browsers, of course, but IE nine plus, and then Android four point one plus. Cool. With, with the limitation that you know. I nine, we don't expect great performance in some situations. It's just not feasible. Like for there's, sure, there's only so much we can do uh, if the the engine is very slow. Uh, but the code itself will work. Cool, awesome. Yeah, those people need to get off I nine. That's pretty much all that we can say. <laughs> actually, I mean, just to be really clear, it's not not that everything in Angular will work on those platforms, but the core will. So, 
Um, so like our material design, like we're not we're targeting evergreen browsers for that. Okay, yeah, and I mentioned like web workers stuff and whatever service workers. That's obviously that's right. not gonna. Yeah, that's IE ten and above. Yeah, cool. Larry King, uh, Larry King asks on Twitter, thanks for everyone's great work on Angular 2. Any updates on status of, one, animations, and two, minimizing Angular 2 payload for mobile? Well, we talked a little bit about minimizing payload. So, you know, we're dropping the framework by going to a compilation step, but we're going to be looking past that to reducing it further through a bunch of techniques. One is by tree shaking. I don't know, Eber, you want to talk about some more plans? So just as I mentioned um, previously, when we take the templates and metadata and generate code, uh, now we have uh, we can generate code with type information in it. And what this allows us to do is do kind of optimizations that usually would be unsafe. But if you have type information, uh, you can actually do crazy minifications and structural changes to the code that minify the code significantly. This is what Clojure Compiler does. Uh, Clojure is a project from Google. Uh, that is useful to minify all of the code that, that Google uh, produces, <coughs> the JavaScript code uh, that Google produces for user-facing applications. And uh, what we have, what we build internally already, is a way to take TypeScript code and minify it using Clojure Compiler with all of the most advanced optimizations turned on. Um, we're looking into how to expose this to the external world uh, and make it uh, super easy to use. Because Clojure Compiler is a Java-based, uh, it requires a JVM to, to run, uh, which is not the most, it, it, there is some friction in setting it up. Internally, you know, this is all handled, but externally we're trying to figure out how to make it easy through NPM, uh, so that you don't even need to know about a JVM being required. Cool. Great. Uh, Nick Mad asks, any planned support for migrating uh, from Angular 1 to 2? So we didn't actually cover this, but I think lots of people are interested. Yeah, Mishko, you built this piece. Right, so there's an ng upgrade, um, kind of a polyfill, which allows you to, I guess it's not a polyfill, but some kind of a magic, that uh, allows you to run Angular 1 and Angular 2 components side by side um, on the same web page. And you can mix and match, so you can instantiate Angular 2 components have Angular 1 and vice versa, uh, Angular 1 have Angular 2. Uh, obviously, the services uh, can be injected across boundaries, et cetera. And so the idea is that we would migrate a component at a time uh, from Angular 1 to Angular 2. So you have options. So you could either you know, do a big bang migration, or you can do it a little bit at a time if you want to uh, spread it out and continue shipping. Do you have any success stories about um, people upgrading uh, so far? We're currently running several pilots uh, where bigger applications, bigger teams have taken ng upgrade and uh, migrating from, from one to two. Um, once we have more data, we plan to publish some blog posts and, and share the experience, uh, but we're not there yet. Cool. Great. I think that's, uh, that's all of our questions from Twitter, so we'll move ourselves into the tips and picks. Um, we'll let Pam go first because she might drop out due to battery problems. <laughs> so go ahead, Pam. Sure, yeah, my poor computer is making lots of noise. Um, so I have a, a tip. Uh, uh, always, uh, Git tips are always fun. So uh, I tweeted a little earlier today about using, I often use Git Rebase Interactive to, uh, to clean up uh, a pull request. And so for a long time, I always use S for squash and then artisanly 
you know, edited my commit message uh, afterward, and then I discovered F for fix up, which also leads into a pic uh, that I tweeted about that, and someone linked me to Git Tips, uh, which um, is a nice repo of uh, of Git Tips, which are always fun, and you always learn something when you read someone else's tips. It's kind of like you know sharing Vim tricks and stuff like that. Uh, and I have another pick too. Um, my friend Luna has a how to make programming more accessible series that she just started blogging about, um, including making open source projects accessible to new uh, new contributors, which I know Ken, you're a big uh, Ken, you're a big fan of. So, uh, so definitely check out her series uh, for for ideas on that. Sweet. Awesome. I am a big fan of making things easy for beginners, so thank you. Great. Um, so I'll go next, and then we'll let our guests uh, go. So for my tip, um, I, I'm a big believer in not confining our conversations um, to one-on-one -on -one conversations. Um, so it's, it can be really easy to actually just make your conversations public. So if you have a question about, like, how do I write a, like, a test for this thing, like, have, have a conversation over a Hangout on Air or something. Have it recorded so that you can maybe make it public and everybody can make the world a better place that way. Um, and my picks are, uh, first I want to pick PayPal. I work for PayPal. I work from home. I totally love PayPal. I think they're awesome. Um, and they let me do this podcast, and I think that's great. So thank you, PayPal. Uh, and then uh, my second pick is Soft Skills Engineering. This is a new podcast from uh, Dave Smith and Jameson Dance about the like everything else that you don't hear on other podcasts about soft skills. It's really, really good. They've had five episodes now, and episode four is Should I Build My Personal Brand? And it's actually a terrific episode. I recommend you check it out. So great. That's uh, my tips and picks. Um, let's go with Brad. What do you have for us? Uh, I'll, I'll go uh, real local and lowbrow. With, uh, if you are using Angular 2, the latest version of WebStorm has some amazing abilities in giving you IntelliSense in the templates and in your code. It's really cool. Cool. Uh, Igor? I came recently across this really cool web application, application called Flat.io, F-L-A-T-I-O. Uh, um, it's an application for collaborative editing of music sheets. Uh, I'm trying to learn piano, and, and I was looking for something where I could build my own sheets, and this popped up. It looks really cool. It's really slick. And when I looked under the hood, it's built with Angular, which was a nice surprise. Uh, <coughs> Angular 1. Angular 1. Very cool. Awesome. And Mishko? So I just discovered this morning this amazing service called uh, run by Financial Times. And they have a CDN with a URL, uh, which ends in something like powerful.js. And what the service does is it looks at your browser uh, agent and says, aha, you're running Chrome or Safari or whatever. You need these set of polyfills. And just magically delivers them for you. So you include one thing, and depending on what browser you have, the payload might be an empty file, or it might contain a large set of things that you need for your particular platform. So I think that's awesome. And I think yeah, we that's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> actually, um, on, on that, I Webpack two um, is requiring a promise polyfill, and so like lots of people used to use Webpack to polyfill promises conditionally, and now that Webpack actually itself requires a promise polyfill, like they're looking for alternate alternative ways to do that, and uh, polyfill IO can do that for you. It's awesome. So cool pick. Yeah. Plus one. 
All right. Uh, so with that, I think that is our show. Let me just give um, a quick shout out to our silver sponsors: O'Reilly, F uh, Fluent Conf, Auth0, Trading Technologies, and new sponsor SparkPost. SparkPost is actually going to be uh, what we use for our newsletter, which you can sign up for at jsair.io/email. And hopefully we'll get a newsletter out this week. So do that. It's going to be great. Um, and then go to suggest.javascriptair.com um, if you have any suggestions for the show, guests, or topics, and or. Um, and then feedback.javascriptair.com is a great place for you to go and submit feedback about the show, about this episode, about a previous episode, or about the show in general. Um, that is appreciated. Um, remember next week, our show is Reactive Programming in JavaScript with Ben Lesh, Matthew Pudwasaki, and um, Andres uh, Stoltz. And then, as always, follow us on Twitter, Google+, and Facebook to keep up with the latest. So with that, uh, I just want to say thank you, uh, Igor, Mishko, and Brad, for coming on the show. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for having us. See ya.